Giving your money to a producer who's a member of the WGA or SAG or any of these guilds to make a TV show is like giving your daughter to Jeffrey Epstein for an island summer camp experience. I know, I speak not natural. I, That's okay. I speak like an actor. Yeah, well, I'm just saying. But you the, need natural speech. No, I just want, well, I want options. I have to make fits like this. I think it's helpful. Because, it would help me. Because Lenin did like this. Okay, go ahead, try again. Okay. Ourselves. Ourselves. 100,000 people and he makes speech. Lead it ourselves. Um, investing in an entertainment business is a fool's errand. It's foolish. People do it because they're uh, incredibly arrogant about how smart they are. Or they want to hang out with movie stars. That's the only reason. There's no, there's no economic or business justification for that. All right, people. Let's go. Welcome to episode two of Thousands of Tiny Tyrants, the Mostly Movies podcast. I'm James Harker, your Triple T host. If you haven't already listened to episode one, Bambi Meets Godzilla, please check it out when you finish listening to this show. And if you'd like to contact me with comments or questions, or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can email me using the contact form on the About page of our website, tinytyrantspodcast.com. Well, Writers Guild of America members ratified their new three-year contract with the AMPTP on October 9th, officially bringing to an end the WGA's 146-day strike. We'll get into the WJ contract in a minute, specifically the unexpected and unforced error the WGA made related to the producers within its ranks. But before I talk to you about this WJ contract development, I want to share with you a personal story illustrating one of the roles on-set movie and TV producers play that is rarely talked about. That's the very important job of protecting sexual and other predators and abusers on set who are also A-list actors, directors, producers, and so-called creatives. Now, the reason Hollywood's many predators are granted what is known in the business as cinematic immunity is both simple and monstrous. The show must go on. Once the movie train has begun rolling down the tracks, nothing can be allowed to delay or derail the train. No crime or event, excepting, of course, a guild or union strike, can be allowed to interfere with the completion of a movie or television project. There's way too much money on the line, and firing a director or a principal actor during shooting because he sexually assaulted or exploited a few or a few dozen women or men would be really disruptive. And for that reason, the abusers and A-list predators on motion picture sets must be protected. It's dirty work, but somebody's got to do it, and those somebodies are the producers. Most of us have heard stories about Harvey Weinstein's and Brett Ratner's and James Gunn's alleged misconduct. But thanks to Hollywood's union and guild-enforced code of silence, as well as cinematic immunity, few people have any idea how widespread sexual and other forms of abuse are at every level of the motion picture industry. That is, among actors, directors, and even below-the-line crew. Now, the real-life story I want to share with you today involves a well-known and very successful director and a big-budget studio film that was shot in New York City a show on which I worked. A few weeks into filming, it was widely rumored among production staff and crew that the director's bodyguard was given the job of plucking actresses from among background performers so that the director could have sex with those women in his trailer. 
All the while, the movie was spinning out of control. We were not making our days, which is movie speak, for the shooting crew wasn't completing all of the work scheduled for a given day. Locations had to be revisited and reshot. Some scenes were never completed. For several weeks, the crew was never broken for lunch, which meant the studio was forced to pay crew members many tens of thousands of dollars for what are known in the business as meal penalties. Because the movie was in such disarray that the producers decided sitting down to eat for half an hour or an hour each day might mean the movie would never be completed. What's more, because the film's very popular lead actor had what is known as a, quote, hard out, unquote, in his contract, which means additional shooting days with an actor cannot be added to the schedule, or in this case, if additional days were added to this A-list actor's schedule, the producers and the studio, under the terms of the actor's contract, would be forced to pay him a penalty of $250,000 for every day of work they added to his shooting schedule beyond a particular date. Throughout this cinematic catastrophe, the very successful director never stopped exploiting women in his comfortable, Teamsters Union-maintained Sodom and Gomorrah on wheels. Because, as we discussed, the show must go on and cinematic immunity. Near the end of the shoot, while we were filming a night scene in an uptown Manhattan bar, and as time was running out for the film's producers, a particularly brazen electrician from Long Island, New York, turned to the production manager and the producers who were seated near us and said, Let me ask you something. This guy, this director, he's finished after this, right? Ain't nobody gonna hire him again, right? To which the producer, without a moment's hesitation, replied, quote, He's definitely finished at this studio. It's hard to focus on making a movie when all you're worried about is getting your dick up in your trailer, unquote. How did that story end? Thanks to cinematic immunity, the A-list predator was protected, the train wreck rolled into the station, sort of, and the horny director went on directing one motion picture project after another. I'll be publishing a listener poll on X where you can vote on which of the directors I've worked with you think is the A-list sexual predator in this true Hollywood story. If you don't already follow the show on X, you can search there for thousands of tiny tyrants or use our X handle at tiny underscore tyrants. That's at T-I-N-Y underscore T-Y-R-A-N-T-S. Joey! You ever seen a grown man naked? You ever hang around the gymnasium? We'd better get back now, Joey. No, Joey can stay here for a while if you'd like. Could I? Okay, if you don't get in the way. Joey, do you like movies about gladiators? All right, move on. Nothing to see here. Please disperse. Nothing to see here, please. All right, the WGA strike is over but not before the Guild's labor actions have cost the California economy more than $3 billion and the national economy more than $6 billion and still counting as the Screen Actors Guild strike continues. And not, unfortunately, before the dual WGA and SAG work stoppages caused or accelerated the collapse of IATSE Local 476's health plan, leaving hundreds of Chicago-based stagehands and studio mechanics and their families either without insurance or facing thousands of dollars in unexpected premium payments. Other motion picture worker health plans may follow. Lost productivity and the destruction of Local 476's health plan are just two consequences of the WGA and SAG strikes. Another, 
probably more far-reaching consequence is the near certainty that the studios and streamers will be financing and purchasing far fewer television series and feature-length projects in order to offset the increased production and distribution costs that will arise from the new WJ contract and from the new SAG contract once that dispute is settled. As you would expect, there is, in spite of all the foreseeable harms these strikes have visited upon rank-and-file workers, more than a little bit of self-congratulation coming from the ranks of the WGA. According to Guild officials, the new contract netted its members annual gains of around $230 million, which is about $25 million more than the contract negotiated with the AMPTP three years ago. But the $230 million for the WGA's more than 11,000 members is a drop in the bucket when compared to the extra-contractual payments pocketed by the Guild's A-list showrunners and producers. Producers such as Taylor Sheridan, Shonda Rhimes, Dick Wolf, John Wells, Kenya Barris, Sam Esmail, and others in a small cadre of union member producers who, as we discussed in our last episode, are the WGA's principal clients. Indeed, it was only days after a dozen of these powerful Guild member producers called for an urgent meeting with WGA leadership that the strike was settled. Pressure on WGA negotiators from these A-list producers and showrunners whose lucrative projects had been stalled by the strike and some of whose deals with the studios were being canceled played a significant role in ending the WGA's Kabuki Theater performance. But even without the increased production costs that will follow these strikes, studios and streamers were likely to put the brakes on their frenzied race to outcreate one another. In fact, content overproduction has been widely discussed for the last few years on every film and TV set I've worked on. The crews and production personnel working on the front lines of motion pictures are the people benefiting most consistently from the years of full employment overproduction, fueled by billions of dollars in state tax credits, has brought to the industry's primary production hubs of New York, Los Angeles, and Atlanta. And many of us on shooting crews knew instinctively that the studios and streamers' spending spree couldn't go on. The quality of scripts was steadily declining, and the quality of above-the-line and below-the-line personnel working in every facet of the production process, from directors and production managers to grips and electricians, was also declining. Unfortunately for the financers of these projects, in many cases, these ragtag armies of ill-prepared and hastily promoted filmmakers and technicians drastically diminished production efficiency and, as a direct result, increased production costs. Which, of course, was fine with us, because, as freelance rank-and-file union movie crew members, roughly half of whose earnings are the result of overtime payments, like to say about incompetent producers, if they knew what they were doing, we wouldn't make any money. And even without the benefit of the insider perspective one gets from working on film crews, the business press wasn't far behind in its assessment of the industry's manic, multi-billion dollar spending spree. Here's what Forbes magazine had to say in June 2023. Quote, in 2022, streamers spent a whopping $23 billion on original new scripted content. Although more original content is being produced than ever before, few are watching it. According to Nielsen, 12 of the top 25 most watched titles on streaming platforms in 2022 were licensed content from years ago, including NCIS, 2003, Coco Melon, 2006, and The Simpsons, 1989, unquote. 
And let's not forget about Suits, which shot its last episode more than four years ago and, according to NPR, set a new Nielsen viewing record this summer by accumulating almost 18 billion minutes of viewing in one month across Netflix and Peacock. Anyway, the full employment party that was the result of streamer and studio overproduction is about to end. And whereas the lucky and well-connected WGA members hired by their showrunner and producer union member bosses will see their already substantial wages increase in percentage terms, the absolute number of WGA members who will actually have jobs once production restarts is likely to decline sharply. The stark reality staring non-producing screenwriters in the face is partly due to the fact that the jobs the WGA went out of its way to protect in this new contract are, not surprisingly, the jobs of the writer-showrunner-producers within the Guild's ranks. Producers who, if you listen to episode one of this podcast, you know shouldn't even be in the WGA. Because producers are, by definition, managers and supervisors barred by law from federally protected union membership. You don't have a collective bargaining unit that can provide some sort of minimums, some sort of guardrails for you. Why is there no such thing? What I've been told is that it's because producers are considered managers and because we are hiring the crew and hiring other people to build the machine that is a specific production, um, we're considered in a management role. We're falling into a category that doesn't allow us to unionize. I've talked a lot in this and the previous episode about supervisors and managers being barred from unions. So I think it's worth mentioning the factors the National Labor Relations Board considers when determining whether an employee is a manager. To put it simply, an employee authorized to execute any one of 12 duties for an employer, duties I'll list in just a moment, is considered a supervisor under federal law. Let me repeat that. If an employee exercises control or effective influence over any one of the personnel matters I'm about to list, not eight or even two, but one, the employee is considered by the NLRB to be a manager who cannot work under a union contract. Here's the list. An employee is a manager or supervisor if authorized by the employer to hire, transfer, suspend, lay off, recall, promote, discharge, assign, reward, or discipline other employees, or responsibly direct them, or adjust their grievances, or effectively recommend such action. To repeat, Having authority to take any one of those actions or to effectively recommend those actions related to a fellow employee makes someone a supervisor, makes them, as producer Jennifer Fox of The Last Duel, Michael Clayton, and The Born Legacy told us a moment ago, management and ineligible for union membership. In spite of the ever-increasing threat that showrunners and producers will one day be excluded from WGA membership, Guild negotiators, in a reckless and hubristic act, had the AMPTP add language to their new contract defining a showrunner. You see, in the past, the WJ didn't define a showrunner in its contracts. This was presumably because everyone at the WGA knows producer-showrunners shouldn't be in a union. Indeed, before September 2023, the WJ referred to producers as, quote, 
writers also employed in additional capacities, unquote. Which was a not very clever way of saying WGA writers who are also corporate bosses and who get to have their cake and eat it too. Because, well, cinematic immunity. But with this new contract, a showrunner has been defined in a legal document as, quote, a head writer or writer designated by the company to make hiring decisions or recommendations, unquote. We'll talk in a future episode about why the WGA might do something this, well, foolish. But for now, it's enough for us to keep in mind that the WGA and AMPTP have publicly documented their cooperation in violating a federal law designed to prevent corporate bosses from infiltrating labor organizations. In spite of the risks inherent in this move, former WGA president and current contract negotiating team member David A. Goodman said this on the Deadline Strike Talk podcast. Does the NBA now include a definition of the word showrunner? Does, in the sense of what we define as a head writer. We want to be careful about how far we, we could go with this because there are certain responsibilities that a showrunner has that can't be covered under the NBA. But in the deal, there is a, a definition of a showrunner determining staff and that that person is a head writer. So in former WJ President David Goodman's mind, his union is being careful when it tells the world a showrunner is someone who, quote, determines staff, unquote. And when he memorializes in a contract that a showrunner is, quote, a writer designated by the company to make hiring decisions or recommendations, unquote. To me, this seems more like poor impulse control and an unshakable faith in cinematic immunity. We want to be careful about how far we, we could go with this. And the guy just kept talking the whole way. <laughs> hey, man, I don't want, I don't want to um, be on, on the news, you feel me? I don't want to be on the news, dog. Well, it's a little late for that, dog. Now, if there's anything else you want to tell me. No, I was in a role-playing chat room, dude. I realize that there aren't many people listening to this podcast or to the Guild's former president, Dave Goodman, on the Strike Talk podcast. But is the WGA not at all concerned that the AMPTP's lawyers or the studios and streamers' lawyers might be setting them up? Is no one at the WGA capable of imagining that three or six or nine years from now, the AMPTP might actually begin representing the interests of their studio and streamer clients and petition the NLRB to exclude producers and showrunners from the WGA and SAG-AFTRA? Or is this whole supervisors are excluded from union membership thing a great big secret? Wait. I've got an idea. Let's ask ChatGPT. Hey, ChatGPT, what can you tell me about movie business showrunners and producers and union membership? Motion picture producers and showrunners in the entertainment industry often have significant authority and responsibilities in making employment-related decisions, such as hiring and firing actors and crew members. As a result, they are typically considered supervisors under the National Labor Relations Act and may be excluded from union membership with the employees they oversee. Wow. I think I'm beginning to understand why the WGA and SAG are so concerned about the studios using AI. And yes, 
that was an AI voiced rendering of ChatGPT's actual answer. Anyway, I guess as long as the studios keep hiring flesh and blood labor lawyers, the Guild and union member producers don't have anything to worry about. I mean, if the Guild's code of silence and cinematic immunity can protect union and Guild members who sexually exploit and mistreat other union and Guild members, it's easy to imagine that the Guild predators don't need to worry about violating something as insignificant as federal labor laws, right? Um, investing in an entertainment business is a fool's errand. It's foolish. People do it because they're uh, incredibly arrogant about how smart they are or they want to hang out with movie stars. That's the only reason. There's no, there's no economic or business justification for that. Until the day comes, if it ever comes, when entertainment company shareholders and other financiers of movies and television shows chase from their eyes the stars that Rob Long, writer, producer of the hit TV show Cheers, just commented on, and begin to hold Hollywood's executive class to account for allowing union member showrunners and writer-actor-director-producers to be on both sides of the contract bargaining table, production costs will continue to skyrocket. And Hollywood's working classes will continue to be denied their right to fair representation by the WGA, SAG, the DGA, and IATSE. The inarguably illegal labor management relationship that dominates Hollywood and has allowed any number of union member actors, directors, and writers who produce or who own production companies to exploit their fellow union and guild members is, as far as I know, utterly unique to Hollywood. Hollywood players such as Michael B. Jordan, Tom Cruise, Julia Roberts, Dick Wolf, Shonda Rhimes, Bradley Cooper, George Clooney, John Wells, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, even WGA President Meredith Steam, and on and on are all production company executives and studio streamer managers who have infiltrated Hollywood's guilds. In doing so, these A-list players have been able to ensure that their interests the interests of the Hollywood oligarchs are protected from what they view as their dual opponents. These Hollywood players' first opponents being the studios and streamers that control access to financing. And their second opponents, the thousands of nameless rank-and-file union and guild members who are their subordinates and employees. This remarkable coup perpetrated by a cartel of Hollywood oligarchs operating within the union and guild cartels could only be dreamed of by the most well-known proponent of a scheme of this kind, revolutionary socialist Vladimir Lenin. The best way to control the opposition is to lead it ourselves. The best way to control the opposition is to lead it ourselves. Hollywood's A-list predator union member showrunners and producers have been leading the opposition from both sides of the Hollywood contract bargaining table for decades. And by doing so, they have managed to convince nearly everyone, studio executives and rank-and-file workers alike, that their manifestly illegal dominance of labor-management relations is an entitlement that flows naturally from these oligarchs' popularity and success and which they insist has rendered them irreplaceable as well as untouchable by law and the most basic rules of business and economics. Hollywood unions and guilds, under the sway of these A-list predators, are George Orwell's animal farm incarnate.
quote, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others, unquote. And now that these union member managers have succeeded in combining their illegitimate influence within Hollywood's unions and guilds with their extraordinary star power to attract financing, they have evolved to become a group of individuals capable of making and breaking careers in Hollywood, even, and perhaps especially, the careers of independent producers who do not enjoy guild membership. A-list predator producers who are competing with other lesser-known independent producers who are not members of one union or another for chunks of the studio financing carcass. But A-listers who, in a brilliant maneuver, have used their control of the WGA and SAG to argue for the empowerment of independent producers over the studios, while at the same time concealing the fact that many of the most powerful independent producers working in Hollywood are also guild members. The late novelist, essayist, playwright, and screenwriter Joan Didion, in her 1979 volume of essays, The White Album, wrote this about working in Hollywood. Quote, Nor does calling film a collaborative medium exactly describe the situation. To read David O. Selznick's instructions to his directors, writers, actors, and department heads in Memo from David O. Selznick is to come very close to the spirit of actually making a picture, a spirit not of collaboration, but of armed conflict in which one antagonist has a contract assuring him nuclear capability. Some reviewers make a point of trying to understand whose picture it is by looking at the script. To understand whose picture it is, one needs to look, not particularly at the script, but at the deal memo." Unquote. Joan Didion knew what she was talking about. And at this moment in motion picture war history, some of the most powerful combatants are A-list, SAG, WJ, and DGA member producers. Showrunners and producers are, to put it simply, the CEOs of a movie or TV show. Taylor Sheridan, Shonda Rhimes, Matt Damon, and Ben Affleck, who are all union member producers, and in Damon's and Affleck's cases, actual studio owners, are the Tim Cooks, Jamie Dimons, and Elon Musks of the movie and TV projects they produce. Indeed, showrunners and producers exercise even greater independent power and authority in the workplace than any corporate CEO because guild member producers directly control and influence minute details of every aspect of the production process, including hiring, extra contractual wage negotiations, and many other factors that affect their unions, brothers and sisters' working lives and careers, as well as the lives of members of other guilds and unions. Look at it this way. What do you think would happen if Tesla CEO Elon Musk was also an officer, or even just a member, of the United Auto Workers Union if the UAW represented his employees at Tesla? Yes, I know Tesla is not unionized. This is a hypothetical. Who would such an arrangement serve? If Elon Musk was an officer or member of the UAW, is it likely that Elon Musk would support, in more than a superficial way, the interests of employees who would also, perversely, be his union brothers and sisters? The fact is that one day Elon Musk might make a decision favorable to UAW members and the next day make a decision in the interests of Tesla that harms his fellow union members. And Elon Musk would be intimately involved in and have knowledge of the operations and strategies of both Tesla and the United Auto Workers Union. The only thing that would be consistent and predictable in this labor management arrangement is that decisions would be made based on Elon Musk's perceived interests at any given moment. 
It is arrangements such as this that federal labor laws barring managers from union membership were designed to prevent. But the motion picture studios and Hollywood's unions have, in a covenant unique in the world of business, cooperated to ignore and undermine many of the laws governing labor management relations that were created to protect workers. And as a result, and over time, both the studios and the guilds have ceded extraordinary power to A-list actor, writer, director, producer, oligarchs. Let me end with this. Nothing lasts forever. And even cinematic immunity has its limits. The extortionate control these Hollywood star producers enjoy within the guilds could end at any moment. Or, to be more precise, the illicit covenant between the studios and streamers and the unions could be breached by the AMPTP during future contract negotiations with Hollywood's guilds and unions. And the AMPTP can execute this act of nuclear war with ease and with a single piece of paper. That piece of paper is NLRB Form 502UC, the studios and the AMPTP's Oppenheimer option, the unit clarification petition. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, Vishnu takes on his multi-armed form and says, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I hope you enjoyed episode two of Thousands of Tiny Tyrants. Please subscribe to our show, follow us on X, Instagram, and TikTok, and visit our website, tinytyrantspodcast.com. During our next episode, I'll be discussing power producer and Smokehouse Productions owner George Clooney's ill-conceived effort as an emissary of the AMPTP to end the Screen Actors Guild strike with an offer to increase actor dues payments to SAG-AFTRA. I'll introduce you to the explosive career of pimp, Chicago mob operative and IATSE official in Hollywood, Willie Beoff, and we'll look at some of the reasons behind Hollywood's abiding affection for grifters and con men through the lens of the classic Newman, Redford, and George Roy Hill collaboration, The Sting. In the meantime, please share the show with your friends, and may you, good people of conscience, keep the thousands of tiny tyrants at bay. <laughs>